I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) God is love. Your ears might be attuned to this truth, but some people around the world might take deep offense to it. For example, Islam has 99 names for Allah that the faithful try to memorize and recite, but not a single one of those is love. But God is love. It is a mystery that can only be explained through a Trinitarian understanding of God who must have eternally known perfect love between Father and Son, Father and Spirit, and Son and Spirit. We worship a God who is in no need of love, yet freely gifts it to his people without ever decreasing. For he is truly and fully love and the perfect embodiment of it. Throughout our study of Song of Songs, we have embarked on an exposition of a human manifestation of God's love for his people in the love between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. There is in the intimacy of the erotic, romantic love between a husband and a wife, a shadow, a model, a foretaste, or representation of a dimension of God's love for us that we won't be able to fully comprehend in this life, but one we should long for because it points us to his husband-like love for us as his church that we will experience throughout our eternal honeymoon. But love is not only for the married. Love is for singles, too. And I will argue from the Word of God today that we should not only experience the model of this love within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, 
because I will also draw out, draw out from the word of God the goodness of singleness and the beauty of emotionally and spiritually healthy intimacy. Together today, we shall look at marriage, singleness, and intimacy. Marriage is one of God's greatest gifts to humanity. The Bible story starts with a marriage in the Garden of Eden and ends with a marriage in the New Jerusalem. Marriage is great, beautiful, and delightful. Paul himself speaks of marriage as a mystery in that it refers to Christ and the church in Ephesians 5.32. Marriage should be the place where selfishness comes to die as each spouse truly seeks the good and the benefit of the other. There is a mutuality, a reciprocity in marriage that is not found in any other human relationship, nor should it be. He is hers and she is his. The wife, Paul says, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wrong would we be if we were to think that marriage is the place we come to find satisfaction of our wants and fulfillment of our needs. In fact, that is probably one of the main reasons for conflict within marriages. Fallen people put such a high burden on the spouse who is also fallen and find faults where perfection was never meant to be. At the time of Paul, the ascetics in Corinth were arguing that the marriage should practice celibacy or abstinence from sexual intercourse within marriage because of the false argument that the future spiritual state had already happened. They thought that they had already become like angels, neither giving nor being given in marriage. Paul refutes this false belief by exhorting both husband and wife to be initiators in giving the other his or her rights, and warns against the withholding of such rights, lest they be tempted. This is in the first five verses that we did not read this morning. Yes, brothers and sisters, sex is commanded within the confines of marriage. For this union in one flesh represents in ways nothing else can the church's union to Christ and that sexual intimacy is not the fulfillment of one's need, but rather the giving of oneself to joyfully fulfill the need of the other and to serve the spouse in a most intimate way. How our world would be different if everyone had this view of intercourse. God has made us sexual beings. Therefore, sex is good. But it has one place only. And anything else that is outside of that place, whether premarital or extramarital, homosexual or heterosexual, adultery or fornication, polygamy or polyamory, pornography or prostitution, is sin. Sex should not be outside of marriage, period. Nor should it be used as a weapon within marriage by withholding it from a spouse. Paul is very clear in his teaching. The romantic and erotic loves within a marriage display a dimension of God's love for his people that any defilement of such a love distorts it in an idolatrous way that dishonors God and disregards his love. 
It is no wonder that he is angry at sexual sin. Any and all attempt at fulfillment outside of marriage will burn you. It will never satisfy. Any thought that such a fulfillment within marriage would fully satisfy you will lead to frustration. The only place we find ultimate fulfillment is in Christ who is the source, the embodiment, and the ultimate object of love. Marriage is great, but it is not perfect. It comes with problems and anxieties. It was never meant to be the ultimate consummation. But like the Old Testament temple and the sacrificial system, they were pointers to what is to come, a foreshadowing of Christ, models of the atonement and the new kingdom. Similarly, marriage itself is a foreshadowing of what is to come, a model of Christ's marriage to his church that one day we will all participate in when by faith all believers enter together with joy to receive the promises at one table with him. Let us beware then of making something that is good, indeed very good, an idol. Too often, it is good things that we idolize. And I fear we may have sometimes idolized marriage so much that we have come to consider the unmarried as infidels to such an idol, to see singles as strangers in a foreign land. But herein comes the Apostle Paul with godly wisdom and spiritual insight to help us rediscover singleness. Paul is blatantly clear that he is not issuing a commandment from the Lord, meaning that Christ himself did not speak to this directly, but he is offering wise counsel and a corrective exhortation because he too has the mind of Christ. And these are both inspired and are canonical. They are in the word of God for our edification. Paul, who was himself single, differentiates between the state of singleness and the gift of celibacy in verse 7. Singleness is a state every human being finds him or herself in at one point in life, sometimes maybe more than once. Whether it's due to circumstances, health or financial reasons, inability to find a spouse, death of a spouse, or even a desire to serve the Lord in singleness, among other reasons. As such, singleness is a circumstance ordained from the Lord that can last a lifetime. While celibacy is a charisma, a gift, that some might receive but others don't. And Paul is very clear to say that the gift of celibacy is not in marriage. Because the Corinthians were speaking, were writing, say, what about, why don't we be celibate in marriage? Paul is very clear to give the spouse his or her conjugal rights, except if you want to hold them for a short period of time for reasons of prayer. That's the only reason why that is held. So it's wrong to command celibacy in marriage, but also, as the Roman Catholic Church has historically commanded its clergy, because it lays a heavy burden that can be unbearable, and it assumes a charisma or a gift of the Spirit that may not be permanent. Paul is again clear that for those who do not have the gift of celibacy or the ability to self-control, those singles who are burning with passion, it is okay to marry. Marriage is a proper alternative. But let us be warned, it is not the remedy. 
Marriage is not the cure to temptation or sexual passions. Any sin we domesticate before marriage will rear its ugly head after we say, I do. We all know this, that sexual sin or pornography is not only for the singles, male or female. Many have fallen to this false belief that if we get married, everything is going to be wiped away. Let us not fool ourselves or one another into such wrong thinking. Sin must be killed. Now, let's also not think of singleness as a second class or a lesser state. It is a good state. Maybe not the best state, but definitely not a lesser state. How many times have we heard things like, God is still sanctifying you before he gives you the spouse? Or you must be content first before God gives you a spouse. We have come to think of marriage as the epitome of sanctification and the reward of a good faith. How absurd. We have so normalized the state of being married that we have come to see as abnormal, may I even say disorderly, the state of singleness. There is a current in the church, especially in the United States, that sees singleness as an illness, maybe even a sin. And the older a single becomes, the more suspicious we become of him or her. Why is he still single? Is she weird because she's single? Or is he single because he's weird? Or maybe there's some disobedience in his life and God is punishing him by keeping him single. Search your feelings. You may have thought those same questions or asked them, even if not publicly. Where is love or charity that does not think ill of other believers? There are even churches that do not have a category for a single man to be a pastor. And I have been to some of those churches where the idea of me becoming an elder was absurd because I'm not married. Even Paul or John the Baptist or Christ himself would not qualify. Because we're better than them. Paul here is reminding us that it is his preference as an apostle of Christ that the unmarried remain single, male or female, for the sake of pleasing the Lord, in verses 32 through 34, and being holy in body and spirit, devoting themselves to the things of God without having the worries or anxieties that come with marriage. Yes, there were circumstances in, in Corinthians, but this is something that is true, and the Bible is always contemporary and relevant. It speaks to all of our matters. In fact, do you know that today, almost 50% of people in churches in the United States are single? Or will be single again? Today we see that in many churches, singles are the workhorses of many ministries. They have freedom, spontaneity, and no wife or husband or children to run things by. 
because that's the first thing we think about if we're married. Let me ask my wife. But still, we seem not to prioritize singles and relationships. We have normalized marriage and the nuclear family to the point where most programs, activities, and relationships become centered around families and children. If we feel benevolent enough, we will create a single and single again ministry or group to further isolate them and to feel better about ourselves. They can just meet on Thursday evening and then we don't have to worry about them anymore. We may turn to the singles, obviously if they're not too old or too weird, to watch our kids. But when was the last time we truly did, as we say in this church, life on life with them in a credible gospel community where they saw what truly happens in a marriage, how husbands and wives resolve conflict, how children are not angels born and raised in heaven then sent to us to live among us, and how the most beautiful relationship can also be the most difficult. How the relationship that the world who worships autonomy has made it so easy to walk away from is also a great mystery that is far more worth and worthy than what the world offers in its stead and that it is worth fighting for tooth and nail. And guess what? You don't do it alone. You do it with the church of Christ because everything is easier in a community. The fake happily ever after promise of filmmakers is the publicity of the pagan. When was the last time Hollywood showed you a happily ever after and then they showed you what happens after? Even those who preach it don't live by it. But the joy of godliness is eternal. Romance will die down. If you just got married, I have news for you. Yes, romance will die down. Happiness will ebb and flow with circumstances. That is the definition of happiness. It is circumstantial. But the Christian will pursue a deep joy, an unshakable mystery that even when, or especially when circumstances are hard, whether single or married, we can find that joy in Christ. And Christians will seek to make a godly marriage work through the perseverance of love, even after romance dies down. What if we were to bring in singles in our church to these realities? Or to bring families into their realities where almost every meal is alone? Table for one? Where every conversation at home is with oneself or with God? We have come to think that singles are unfulfilled or lacking, even in the experience of love. But have we stopped to think that we may have contributed to such lacks? We seek relationships with those who look like us, married with two kids, empty nesters, parents of newborns. Have we stopped to consider people who are not like us, who we might want to pursue friendship with? You know people who do things together, who agree on everything? What is that called? What is it called? An, an echo room, right? An echo chamber? You all do things? 
right? Everyone does everything together who looks the same and does the same thing, right? In a world that talks about diversity, this is the best place that we can experience that in the body of Christ. People who don't look like us, who we might want to pursue friendship with. Life on life between a family and a single woman who can see the real inside version of your marriage away from doctored Instagram posts and the airbrushed Facebook perfect little family dinner pictures. Because we all post our best online. How about life on life between a family and a single man who may play with your kids and also help parent them when they may not listen to you? Yes, friends, singles may have more time than you do, but they also have more freedom than the married do because they have less of anxieties of a marriage. And Paul says this is good. So they can have more freedom to visit or be visited. 11.30 p.m., teacup, anyone? More ability to do ministry. Less constraint on travel for mission trips or vo for volunteering. Most of missionaries today around the world, about two-thirds of them are single women. Here I am, send me. So take advantage of that, church, both in building bonds with and in making good use of singles. But I also admonish you, married people, not to hide yourself behind your family and forsake the things of the kingdom or the single people in the body. And here I want us to rediscover intimacy and love in their proper context. You see, there is an illusion that sexual intercourse is the one intimacy that can satisfy. For the believers, it is often thought of within the context of marriage. For the unbelievers, it is often thought of as an, as an end in itself, regardless of place, time, circumstance, or even person. It is the act itself that is sought after. There are movies, TV series, and talk shows that make fun of those who grow older and are sexually unfulfilled. But I want us today to grasp this truth, which Paul says to the Philippian church. To live is Christ. Not to experience sexual intimacy. That is the publicity of the world. People can be having a lot of sex without experiencing intimacy, while intimacy can be experienced without ever having experienced sexuality. People can be having a lot of sex without ever experiencing intimacy. But people can experience intimacy without ever experiencing sexuality. I want that to sink in your mind for a moment. Otherwise, Jesus Christ, who was the perfect man to ever walk this earth, would have been found wanting. One would argue that Solomon, who wrote Song of Songs that we just finished halfway going through, did not believe what he preached because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand. 
only to find out at the end that it was all meaningless. He wrote another book about the meaninglessness of it all and never brought intimacy or satisfaction. I think if we study his life, we see that that did not bring him intimacy nor satisfaction. He may even have been experiencing soul-crushing and bone-rotting loneliness. You see, people can live in a house full of people, spouse and kids and all, and be some of the loneliest people on earth. While singles can be living alone in an empty house, yet not experience loneliness and be satisfied. And guess what? Do better hospitality than a lot of the married people. What I am arguing is that similarly to how proper sexuality within a marriage is a representation of a dimension of God's love that we won't be able to fully comprehend in this life. And I hope you think of that married person, brother and sister, that that is a, there is a dimension of God's love for us that he made us a sexual beings that we will never fully comprehend, but in the doing of it, we can get some of his love for us that we will never fully comprehend in this life. That such a dimension can be experienced by individuals in the state of singleness by committing themselves to the holiness of God and through godliness to the love of other believers without ever even experiencing sexuality. And it is the job of all of us to make sure that happens. Our thinking has been warped to imagine that intimate relationships between people outside of marriage especially of the same gender, must be of a sexual nature. We may be failing to see what God intends to be experienced in the body of Christ. I'm not talking about Frodo and Sam here. I'm talking about John leaning his head on Christ's chest. I'm talking about David and Jonathan, who people think they must have had some homoeroticism. I have been asked this here not too long ago, if that was the truth. But they failed to see that David, who knew many women, may have only experienced emotionally healthy intimacy in his friendship with Jonathan. And in it, he found a dimension of God's love that he did not find anywhere else. Because God himself is love, he gifts himself to us in a way that none of us ever can, even for those we love most. Yet still, all such attempts represent a dimension of his divine love for us that he intended for us to know and to give. And we can practice such representations in healthy ways in all aspects of our relationships. In his love for us, God is never in need, but always a giver, unlike us. But I think we can try by his grace to practice the giving of love and of intimacy as a gift without being overtly needy. And in that, we can have a shadow, a model, a mystery of what his love is like. I do not think having a need is wrong. I believe God wired us in a way that we can crave love with the ultimate fulfillment being in experiencing God's love for us. I think that is why when we first come to Christ and we believe and we experience his love, we are euphoric because we have never experienced such an overwhelming love that gifts itself freely without showing any need. I think this is what gives us that joy. And for some reason, it 
mellows down later on, but wouldn't it be great if that joy endured because God's love for us endures? C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves, not experiencing a need for such a love is probably the most proud and highest of selfish dispositions we can ever have. Augustine said, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in him. And I will add this, until they find their satisfaction and their fulfillment in him and in his love. Without this experience, loneliness is inevitable, single or married. Yet for the believer, Rebecca McLaughlin says, loneliness is the only form of suffering that should not be experienced, should not be allowed in Christianity. In singleness, the desire to fall in love and be married can be overwhelming. It can lead to severe loneliness. But in the body of Christ, members should not feel lonely. Christianity's radical view of singleness and of the love a gospel community can intimately share with all its members proclaims to the world a mysterious joy and a gift through which all believers are helped by the Holy Spirit to intimately unite together, to flee sexual sin, and to seek holiness. It is easier to flee sexual sin and the body of Christ together. Christ's love for his bride should be modeled by his children's love for one another in an emotionally and spiritually healthy intimacy that seeks to serve and give the other and considers others better than oneself. A few years ago, I ran into a Christian I had not seen in a couple of years. Are you still single? He asked me. I was really tempted to ask him, are you still married? The truth is most people would not think twice about the first question, but many, like you, might find the second quite offensive. And I did not say it, but I'm tempted to start saying it. Why? Why is it that we have relegated singleness to a merely undesirable state? one to seek escape from, one to be freed from. Marriage is good. No, marriage is great, bless you. It is God's design for most people to marry, to have children, and to fill the earth. It is within marriage that erotic love and the making of love are to find exclusively their expressions. No wonder there's an entire book dedicated to this type of love. Song of Songs is full of love. It's an exquisite treatise of a relationship of love between two lovers, and God has given this to us, his people, to learn from. Love is great. Couples get excited about it. The married relish it. But what about the rare breed of single adults in our churches? Song of Songs is for singles, too. And there is a threefold repetition in it that warns all the unmarried, do not awaken love until it pleases. It's repeated three times, which actually makes it the refrain of Song of Songs. Chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 4. Romance can be exciting. Desires 
can be enticing. Passions can be compelling. It is not a sin to marry if one is burning with passion. But it is not the remedy. And in the Church of Christ, we truly have a God-given commission to intimately unite together as one body under one head and experience dimensions of his love for us with the help of the Holy Spirit that we would, that the world around us cannot and that can truly deepen our love for one another and for the Lord and protect our marriages and our singleness from little foxes and lurking wolves. So married brothers and sisters, to live is Christ. Godliness is good gain. Spiritual maturity is in a godly character, not a state of life. Married or single. Do not treat singles as second-class citizens. Remember that the body of Christ is the entire church, not those married with two kids. Singles should not equate lonely, just as marriage does not necessarily equate happiness. Encourage the singles. Minister to them. And stop saying nonsense. Make it so that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for Christ's name receive a hundredfold family members in the body of Christ in this life and in the age to come. Some of us have left countries and have been displaced from families for the sake of the kingdom. It is not too much to ask that the body of Christ would hem us in. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord brings me in, right, to his church. And I am thankful that in this church we have many people who have understood this and practiced this toward one another. And then, married brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on heaven and rejoice in the promised eternal joy. And single brothers and sisters, including myself, singleness is a gift from God. Thank him. Let us not waste our singleness. Singleness has a lot of advantages. Use it for the kingdom and devote yourself to the church. There are many singles who are not part of a church, and if you know people who are believers, encourage them to commit themselves to a body. Singleness is also hard. Ask him for grace, for sustenance, and do your best to be godly. Do your best with the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. It is perfectly possible for one to be single and to be content and to still desire marriage and seek a spouse. If you desire marriage, seek it, but do not burn up and be content. Paul ends his passage by saying, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his virgin, if his passions are strong, not behaving properly, passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wish. Let them marry. It's not sin. 
But hear this, whoever is firmly established, being under no necessity, having his desire under control, has determined this in his heart, it is okay not to marry. Not everyone can fulfill this. So if you are burning with passion, seek a spouse. And if you're struggling with sexual sin, seek a brother or a sister, because the struggle is on both sides, right? Seek a brother or a sister. If, if you're a male, seek a brother. If you're a sister, seek a sister. And also there's wise people in this church that God has given us for us that we should go to and seek help in these areas of life. And, and I beg you, don't keep it vague, an unspoken prayer request or whatever it is, or I'm struggling with this area of my life. Find someone you trust who can, not, not someone who would, you know, say, oh, it's all good. Someone who points you to Christ and who can walk with you and who you can call when you are struggling with this. And hear this, singleness is not permanent. Fix your eyes on heaven and rejoice in the promised eternal joy. Our Bible story begins and ends with marriages. The first is temporal. It's never perfect. It does not last forever, but it is good. And God has ordained it for most people. He who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It is a beautiful model of Christ's sacrificial love for his church and her devotion to him. Despite its difficulties, where else can two completely different wills unite into one, which takes a lifelong commitment to make work, and in which each is growing, Lord willing, in kindness, humility, and love, and decreasing in selfishness, autonomy, and independence? Where else can we find that in this life? That is why it's a model, it's a mystery, of, and model Christ's love for his church. Nonetheless, the last marriage is the real deal. Perfect, glorious, and eternal. There will truly be happily ever after, 10,000 years, and then forevermore. In this life, there are both singleness and matrimony. Paul says, either is good, neither is right nor wrong, Neither is sinful. Sam Alberry says, if marriage gives us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. His grace is sufficient. In the age to come, there will be no marrying nor giving in marriage. So hear this. God is preparing each of us, each of us, each one of us, for eternal singleness vis-a-vis -vis one another. With consummate intimacy in our future corporate marriage as a church with the Lamb, where we will fully, we will all fully and truly experience all dimensions for God's love for us in ways we can never fully comprehend in this life. What a glorious day that will be. I think that is why one of the most famous verses in Song of Songs in chapter 8 says that romantic love is strong as death, fierce as the grave, and it is the very flame of God. No wonder we are warned not to awaken it. 
Yet also, no wonder we are given it because it opens our eyes and ears to a dimension of his love for us that our maker is our husband, as Isaiah says in um, Isaiah 54. Our maker is our husband. Our savior is our lover whose love is stronger than death because he conquered it. Fierce, fiercer than the grave because he is risen and is the very flame that will usher us into our eschatological wedding feast where we shall all find ultimate fulfillment altogether, eternal fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is the love of God that has, he has shown us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So let us rejoice in it and embrace it and also show it to one another. God, I thank you for your love that is stronger than death, fiercer than the grave, the very flame of God. You have loved us with an everlasting love. That's why you have endured your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Christ our Lord, seated on the throne. You are the God who have shown us that we belong to you because of your love, your love that never fails, your love that never diminishes, your love that is never in need, that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we thank you, God, for this love that you have shown us. And even as we continue to study the word and the rest of Song of Songs next week on, remind us that the love of God has been given to us through Christ Jesus. And remind us every day that that is a love that we ought to give to one another. That is a love that we ought to experience from one another in the body of Christ. And that we, the church of Christ, should be radically different from the world around us. That we show our intimacy with Christ and with one another in a healthy way, in an emotionally and spiritually healthy way that makes the world wonder about our love for one another. And then the world can come and seek to know this love and the Savior who has given us this love eternal. Be glorified in our life, in our unity together, in our relationship with one another in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen.